Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everybody, and good evening. Um, I know all of you are probably that are listening are into uh, DNA, and if you are not, you should be. Um, if you're an adoptee, especially, and I know the the latest and greatest uh, commercials for Ancestry.com, and you know, finding out if you're Native American which I know a lot of us think we have that in us. Um, But there's so much to do with DNA. It's a fantastic, amazing uh, process that has helped, I don't even know how many family members and adoptees uh, find their history, their family. Um, It's definitely something that, you know, if you are interested in it, you should look into it. So that is why we have our guest on tonight, and I am, like, so thrilled to have her here. So I just want to introduce a little bit about Cece Moore. She is a genetic genealogy consultant for the PBS television series Finding Your Roots with Henry Louis Gates, Jr. Her work has also been featured on 2020, Genealogy Roadshow, Nightline, Good Morning America, Crime Watch Daily, Nancy Grace, CBS This Morning, and The Doctors, as well as being quoted in many online print and print publications. Her primary focus is promoting genetic genealogy education and sharing positive stories about the power of genetic genealogy through the media. So welcome, Cece. I'm so thrilled to have you on here. Hi, Pam. It's so great to be on your show. I'm really looking forward to this. Well, I I don't even know if we can ask all the questions we have in the time we've got allotted, but, you know, I, I know there are so many out there, and I remember – if we want to go to the DNA Detectives Facebook page, if we go back when I jumped on maybe a year ago, I want to say maybe there were eight or 9,000 maybe, and I know now you are over 20,000 people on that Facebook page alone. So what do you think has been the drive to have DNA, you know, come to this forefront, and what kind of brought you to the place of being – you know, such an amazing expert in it? Well, uh, back in 2009, when 23andMe first introduced autosomal DNA for genealogy, that really opened the doors and increased the potential of what we could do with DNA just immensely. And so at that time, I wasn't really thinking about adoption and uh, parentage applications because I hadn't been been involved in that at all. But right. when I started blogging in 2010, and also I was running the DNA newbie list, people started coming to me that were adopted or had learned that their father was not their biological father when they took a DNA test and right. asked me if I could help them, if I could use my right. genetic genealogy expertise and apply it to their case. And that intrigued me. So right. started spending quite a bit of time trying to figure out the best way to apply genetic genealogy to those types of cases. Um, I got together with some traditional search angels like um, Patty Draber and uh, Gay Tannenbaum, um, right. Diane Harmon Hogue, and then my good friend, Karen Corbeil, who I actually knew through traditional genealogy because her husband and I are about, I think, fifth cousins. And she had helped me 15, 20 years ago when I first started researching. So wow. we got together. I know it was really funny to have it 
come around right. in this way. She never even told me she was adopted until about 2010. So we worked really hard on the methodology, and we didn't have a lot of successes at first. Um, the databases were much smaller, and it took them time to grow, which has been really the major thing that has changed um, the level of success stories we're seeing. But also right. we worked a lot on how to best apply this science to helping people discover their biological roots. So right. it's been quite a ride, uh, about six yeah. years now. And I was always Have you seen it really? I mean, ha, has the technology advanced much in that six years, or is it just that we're kind of all starting to, you know, realize it and get into it? The technology is really pretty much the same, although right. some of the companies have introduced better tools for us. But okay. we're still using the same type of testing. They're still testing about the same amount of genetic markers. So that in right. itself hasn't much. But our usage right. of it and of all the size of the databases is what has really changed. I mean, when I was first doing it, we had maybe 30,000 people tested. And now just today I heard Ancestry alone has 2.2 million people. So, oh, my God. And that's just them. You know, and then 23 yeah. is probably yeah. close to about 1.5 million. And, and then Family right. TV has couple or a few hundred thousand. So that makes a huge difference. And I think sure, for people, it does. if you have roots in the United States, like deep roots, then I think that it hit critical mass for that group of people. For people right. with more recent immigrant ancestors, I think it's more difficult still, right. although it's not impossible. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I know, um, you know, a friend of mine who actually lives in Indiana, um, you know, he is um, part Korean, and so he has done, I think, with, I believe it's with 23andMe, um, you know, helped fund so that a lot of the, um, you know, Korean adoptees will have the ability to be able to test and kind of put them all in this, you know, um, block so they can, you know, afford to do it. And, you know, I think it's definitely helping you know, um, them be able to connect because that's got to be, you know, very random and difficult. But hopefully maybe there are relatives within that have made it here to the United States too, you know, that will test. Right, and what he's doing is amazing, and they've already started to see some tests from it. But what I find with some of these international adoptions is they don't typically find their birth parents, but a lot of times I see them matching to other adoptees who've come to the U.S., they might be cousins or even in some cases siblings or half-siblings occasionally. So you never know, you know, who else ended up in the United States, as you said, and if one child is adopted from a family, it's possible that others were also to the United States. So I think there's always hope. Yeah, it's definitely, it's a a great thing, you know. um, Yeah, I totally forgot we all actually served on that. (laughs) that board together I totally forgot about that but oh right it's funny you and I've known each other a long time and it's weird how everything kind of interconnects itself in this in this community you know I mean Mm -hmm. I think that's that's the one positive thing about it that you know we all are close and we have this ability to say you know listen I, I know someone here so go try this you know and I had asked you because 
you know, I had done 23andMe, I had done Family Tree DNA, and I'm like, no luck. And I did it almost at the beginning. I did it in 2010, and I thought, okay, nothing. And so I did Ancestry. And mm-hmm. I think it was only three weeks later that a first cousin then tested. And it wow. was, you know, um, it was actually um, an adoptive mother who tested her um, young daughter. And she tested, I believe, all the children. Her husband's an adoptee also. Mm-hmm. So oh, wow. it's, it's, it's so crazy how it just, if she hadn't tested her daughter, you know, it never would have linked me to them. And then my paternal side was, I mean, it took us three hours. That was it. <laughs> so, yeah. Sometimes once, it goes like that. I know. Once Boy, she, once she tested and it came up, we looked at it, and it was three hours later, and we had it figured out. And I'm like, that. I mean, I had waited, no kidding, and I had looked for over 25 years for my dad. Mm-hmm. So to have it happen in three hours, you just kind of think, wait a minute, and it's, it is fast, of course, but really it's slow too. You know, thinking about That's how right. long it took me to get to that point. But I wondered if we could explain to people, you know, who are listening, who are. If we go to the beginning and we say, okay, if you're thinking about testing, and you're wondering, you know, how does this work? If we kind of walk them through just the first basic steps of, you know. What do they do and what do they receive? And then, you know, where do they go from there? Well, the first thing that we recommend currently is starting with Ancestry DNA. And that didn't okay. used to be our main recommendation. When you started, we were recommending 23andMe. So you did exactly uh-huh. what we were at that time. But Ancestry right. DNA came to the scene two years later, but uh, they've been able to sell a huge amount of tests and develop some really helpful tools for us. So at this point, right. we say tested Ancestry DNA. And if you're in my DNA Detectives Facebook group, we actually have a discount link in there for $20 off. So it's $79 if you do it that way instead of $99. And then right. um, typically, we would have you transfer into Family Tree DNA for only $39. However, since Ancestry changed their chip recently, uh, those transfers have been uh, put on hold. I don't think that it's going to be a long-term issue, but they're working through some compatibility issues. And so at the moment, you can't do that. But Family Tree DNA is on sale right now. I don't know for how much longer. Um, it's only mm-hmm. $69. That's the cheapest I've ever seen. That test. Right. So if people don't right. want to wait, they might want to get both of those. And unfortunately, 23andMe is our last recommendation because they doubled their price. But they sometimes, did. yeah, but when someone's tried both of the other two and they haven't got anywhere, it really mm-hmm. is worthwhile to do 23andMe because these are unique databases. So we have sure. different testers at each of the three companies. And you might find a really close match at 23andMe or otherwise key match that finally helps you break through that brick wall that has been standing in your way for sometimes decades. So I've had a number of foundling cases, for instance, that at 23andMe, we've gotten a first cousin match. And wow. like you just explained, you know, right. that breaks it wide open after right. decades of searching. So I definitely don't want to say not to test there. I know some people have gotten kind of negative about them, 
but it is still a different database. It's a different type of people that are testing there, people interested in the medical sure. side more than genealogy. And That's right. Yeah, sometimes yeah. they won't respond, but a lot of times they will. And now they're right. not allowing anonymous users. So even if you just get their name, you can often figure out how you're connected to that. So, okay, That's let me go true. back. So you'll... So you order the test, say Ancestry DNA, they'll mail it to right. you, and you have to give a saliva sample. So there's a little mm-hmm. tube in there that you spit into and mail it back. And there's a postage paid little box in there. So they make it really simple for you. But you want to make right. sure you register it online. So there's a, a UPC type number on that that you're going to register at Ancestry.com. So mm-hmm. you'll get updates on your test and they'll know where to send the results. And then you wait about six weeks or so, mm-hmm. and when they receive it, don't worry. It takes quite a while for it to get checked in and then for it to start processing because right. they're so busy right now. So there's nothing wrong if that's how yours goes. But once it starts processing, it's coming in about 10 days to two weeks. So I'd say wow. six weeks is average at the moment right. could be eight weeks. So kind of a long wait. It was much quicker for a while, but the good news is the reason it's slower is because they're selling so many tests. Right. Then they're going to compare right. your autosomal DNA, and that's a type of DNA you inherit from all of your ancestral line. So you can trace both mom's side and dad's side. They're going to compare you to everyone else who's already in the database. And then based on how much DNA you share with different people, they'll predict a relationship. So if you share about, say, 3% of your DNA, they'll say, oh, we think you're second cousins, or we think you're second to third, third to fourth. And then that is what you use to piece back together your biological family tree by looking at the people's family trees that share DNA with you. So that's kind of, in a nutshell, how you get started. Um, Pretty complicated. It's a steep learning curve, but people really can do it. You don't have to be a scientist. Right. You can come up to our group and ask questions and um, kind of get guided as you go along and learn what you're doing there. There just aren't enough search angels or DNA detectives to work everyone's case anymore. So people oh, really I know. Yeah, that's so if it. we go back when, when you were saying that they can do ancestry and then once they get those results, and then I know you said that FTDNA is on hold, the family tree DNA, mm-hmm. um, what what does it do so that you transfer? Is that so that you're just doubling your chances of being, you mm-hmm. know, in different, you know, pools of autosomal DNA? Or yeah, is that pretty the reason much. to so, do the Yeah, it's not doubling tree? because Ancestry is so much larger than family tree DNA's autosomal. Right. So it's, right. it's probably only, say, 10 to 20% in size. Okay. However... It, many of those people tested Ancestry. So you right. wanna, you're going to download your raw data from Ancestry, and then you upload mm-hmm. it to Family DNA's database. So you don't have to do another DNA sample. Nothing has to be mailed. They're just going right. to take that raw data from the technology that Ancestry used, because Family Tree DNA uses the same technology, basically, and then they can just use that to compare you to everyone instead of using your actual DNA sample. Um, one thing I forgot to mention, though, is that you definitely also want to upload to GEDmatch, GEDmatch.com. I was just going to ask you about that. <laughs> yeah, that's a free third-party site uh-huh. made by citizen scientists, 
And there, people upload from all three companies. So even if you haven't tested at 23andMe, for instance, you'll still be matched to some people that tested only there. Now, it's not right. everyone, obviously, but it's, it's a certain percentage of each of the databases that are utilizing that. Right, right. And it's free. So that's another good thing, too. Yeah, yeah I think it, to, yeah, it, it loads everything up, too, and, and email addresses are, you know, on the right. Mm-hmm. And I've seen, I don't know if you've noticed, but you may get people that have uploaded to GEDmatch multiple times. So you'll see right. the same person, like, three times in a row. And people get excited, mm-hmm. and you're like, oh, wait a minute, that's, you know, that's the same person. So I think you right. know, when you're doing you know, be careful that you're not uploading multiple times to GEDmatch. You know, do it one time or, you know, if you need to re-upload it or something, you know, because <laughs> it's just, it's just you know, making the, the process more clouded instead of, you know, clear. Yeah, I agree with you. And it also overwhelms their system. When it was early days, we would upload all three of our different files, one from 23andMe, one from Ancestry, and one from Family Tree DNA. But we learned it's really not necessary there will be very right. small differences between those. But for adoption work or unknown parentage work, it's not going to make any difference in your search if you just use one of those files. They're close enough to each other sure. that it really only affects more distant matches, and distant matches aren't going to solve these cases anyway. Right, right. Um, can we tell everybody, and I know it's kind of a, a confusing measurement of you know, how they – how they measure, and then there's also, which I refer, and I don't know if I'm sure you do, to a chart of some kind. Um, I do the ISOGG chart, and if you want to mm-hmm. maybe explain, you know, kind of what this comes in as in a measurement so that people, you know, when they're opening the results, what that's coming in to look like. So if you get matched to a first cousin, you'll share about 12% and a half of your DNA on average. So about 12.5% of your DNA, you might share a little bit more, a little bit less. And that's about 850 centimorgans. So if you're okay. on 23andMe, 23andMe gives you the percentages, but both family tree DNA and ancestry just give you the centimorgans. So if you see right. about 850, then your first cousin, you might be, it might be your half uncle or aunt or half aunt, uh, nephew or niece, or it can also right. be a great great aunt or uncle. So we see great aunts and uncles now more because people are testing their elderly relatives. They've listened to us over the last couple years. So we are seeing those in quite a few adoption cases. It looks like a first cousin, but it's a great aunt. So keep in mind, there's a few different possibilities for each of these DNA shares. Just because Ancestry says first cousin or first to second cousin, that doesn't mean those are the only possibilities. So on the chart that you mentioned at ISOG Wiki, uh, it'll give some of the different possibilities. And then we have one in DNA Detectives as well that we've tried to use, um, tried to put together from a lot of proven relationships, both from my own family studies and from a lot of the cases that we've solved. And on that one, we really tried to include the many different types of possible relationships you're looking at. So then right. if you share about, say, 6% of your DNA with someone, or about, say, 425 centimorgans on average. You're looking at a first cousin once removed or a half first cousin, a couple other possibilities. And if it's about half of that, say you share about 3%, 
then you're most likely a second cousin. Or mm-hmm. first cousin twice removed. Right. Uh, you could be a half first cousin once removed. So it's getting more distant with the less sure. that you should, obviously. Um, but there's still quite a few possibilities. So you have to keep an open mind. Just because it's predicted to be a second to third cousin, it might not be that. It could be a first cousin twice removed or a first cousin three times removed, which we used to not see, but we really are seeing that now. Sure, it's good sure. news that we're getting a lot of these older people tested before it's too late because some of yeah. that, it's, you know, it's like burning libraries, I've heard someone say. You know, right. we, we don't get back. And so the more we can get that older generation tested, the more likely we'll be able to solve cases in the future with that DNA. So I agree. I'm I agree. To see that, but it's made it more confusing, in a way, because people don't think of those types of relationships as often. That's not the first thing right. you think of when you see a match like that. So I just want to urge people, you know, look at the charts, look at all the possibilities. Right. Don't jump to a conclusion. If it's someone much older than you, then there's a really right. good chance that you are looking at one of those more removed relationships as far as generational. So when we talk about first cousin once removed, can we explain, you know, where that puts us in the lineup Um, as far as, I mean, we all know what a first cousin is, you know, but when we go into the once removed, can we explain just that little step and then, you know, hopefully they can figure it, you know, as it goes down. But what does a first cousin then once removed mean? So it's really important to learn this. When I first started working with genetic genealogy, I actually had a chart sitting on my desk. I kept having to go look at it because it really affects how much DNA you're going to share. When there's a removal, like first cousin once removed, you're only going to share half the amount of expected DNA. So what it means is one person is closer to the common ancestral couple than the other one as far as generationally. So Mm -hmm. your first cousin once removed, if you're the older one or the upper generation, your grandparents are their great-grandparents. Now, you can't always tell by age. For instance, my first cousin is a year younger than her niece, my first cousin once removed. But in general, general, the person that's the closer to the common ancestors will be the older one, but not 100% of the time. So... uh, First cousin once removed is my first cousin's children. Right, and right. So a lot of times that's what, exactly what we're seeing in these matches is about 5 or 6% shared. So we're looking at that first cousin once removed. So say my grandparents or your great-grandparents, then we would be first yep. cousin once removed. That's exactly, that's have- exactly what happened to me. That's, that was the exact relationship. It was a 1C1R. One one um, it was my first cousin's child. So... Yeah, I mean that's and if if she hadn't signed up again, so you're. I mean, is that is that how most people are making the match? I mean, because we're getting that step down, you know, enough that they're testing, and then we're also going the other generation, you know, getting the older generation in there too. Yeah, we see a lot of those, but we're also seeing a lot of half uncles and aunts, half niece nephew, because a lot of adoptees have half siblings. It's not sure. surprising, right? Got half right. siblings out there. And so we do see a lot of those matches, too. And those ones look like first cousins. So those are sharing a lot of DNA, like 12%, as I said, or about 850 Morgans. So that's happening really often. But, you know, we're also seeing a lot of half-sibling matches. 
And people sure. are confused because at Ancestry it says close to first cousin. So people yes. think that's a first cousin. And it is almost never a first cousin in that category. I don't want right. to say never, but really right. close to never <laughs> is it a first mm-hmm. cousin. If you look right. and you're shooting 1,600 centimorgans, that's not a yep. cousin. You know, that's your that's half sibling or your aunt or uncle, niece, nephew, or grandparent, grandchild. So, right. And most often half sibling, though we see a lot of full aunts and uncles too. So it's sure. amazing. I opened uh, one of the results for someone I'm working with and saw so-and-so is your parent. So we're even occasionally getting parent-child matches, which wow. is, of course, rarer. Not sure. impossible. Right. It's, it's happening out there too. So it's, right. um, it's really exciting. I mean, because back when we first started doing this work, those things were just a dream. Who said that was like being struck by lightning to get a close match? Sure. And sure. now it happens for multiple people every single day just in my group, on my Facebook group. You know, we right. see multiple people posting every day that they got close matches. And oh, it yeah. used to be, you know, few and far between. And those are just the people we're in touch with. There's lots of other people out there that aren't active in our community that, you know, we can assume are also getting these types of matches and just right. telling all. <laughs> They're not going on 20. Uh, well, yeah, and the, yeah, like you said, it. there's only just that few that talk. I mean, you know, I can remember, you know, getting the test results in and having a bunch of, you know, mostly third cousins. I had fourth, and then there were the, you know, couple of seconds or whatever. But when that first cousin came in, and really it was the one C1R, and by the time I made the contact with the family, what I had to end up doing is all of my paternal um, uncles and who we thought was my father, all of them were deceased. So I then had to test, you know, first cousins. And obviously one of them mm-hmm. back a sibling. We just didn't know which one. And right. one brother did not have children. So, yeah, we did exactly that. You know, I wonder, too, if, and I think some people get confused, and if you, they don't have these close matches and they're really kind of scrambling at things, you know, you'll have, I think I have a 1C1R that I share more DNA with than an actual you know, first cousin. So yeah. I think people sometimes I mean, then will get confused and they're like, you know, <laughs> trying to explain it to them and they, they're like, I don't understand that. You know, I don't get that. So right. is it that and, pull know, more DNA from, you know, one parent or, you know, is that how that happens? Right. Well, it, it really shouldn't happen very often, but we see anomalies. There are situations right. where there's overlap between the, the various groups, grouping. So, I mean, like, right. uh, first cousin once removed, a half first cousin versus a second cousin. Sometimes we'll see sure. a really high sharing second cousin and a really low sharing first cousin once removed. So right. that's why I say you got to keep an open mind. But I always go sure. with the easiest answer first. So if it's 5%, I'm going to look at the first cousin once removed and the half first cousins first. And if right. I'm not finding anything that fits, then I'm going to go down to the second cousin. So most right. of the time you can count on predictions on the chart, you know, being pretty good. But those, the one that we have in DNA Detectives, we're trying to say what happens about 95% of the time. 
our mm-hmm. anomalies and outliers where, for instance, the LL Cool J um, case that I did for Finding Your Roots, I had right. two different first cousin levels that shared 18.5%, which right. would drive me crazy, you know, because I'm trying to narrow this down and I'm testing all these people. And when you get 18.5%, sure. you know, that's getting close to a half sibling. So I had to right. use the X chromosome to make sure it wasn't. Because I've seen a half sibling down to 16.9%. And it was a proven half sibling because there was five of them and they all tested. And everyone else right. was matching perfectly except that one. But I just don't want people to get stuck on that too much because it can be misleading. If you sure. think if there's too much of that overlap and you're too many of these outliers, you may reach the wrong conclusion. I mean, we have some people insisting that their half-sibling is really a first cousin, just a high-sharing first cousin, when it's definitely not that. You know, but it helps right. people with denial sometimes. And so as much as I want to say keep an open mind, there are some things that you're, you're just not going to see. Some people say, oh, well, I heard that it's possible for full siblings not to share any DNA. That is not possible. I, I don't right. care. Yeah. <laughs> if yeah. Scientists You're like, that is not possible. Probability, <laughs> it's just not going to happen. It's not something that right. we need to consider when we're working these cases. And yeah. so, you know, I, I want people to be aware that some of these relationships that have been reported are not proven relationships. They're saying that their, their half-sibling shares 12% with them. Well, guess what? You know, somebody is not related the way they think they are. And so when you're using self-reported numbers, you have to keep that in mind. That's why we try right. to use proven. With our chart, we're trying to use proven numbers where we actually have been able to prove the relationships between the people by additional testing. Um, in particular, my, my family, I have like 40 people tested. And that's uh, yeah. been many, 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 many relationships between those sure. people. and. I've tested enough people. For instance, when I tested one of my second cousins, we only shared 1%. And I thought, uh-oh, maybe we're only half second cousins, which means we only shared right. one great-grandparent instead of two. But uh-huh. then I tested a lot of other people in the family, and everyone else fit. So it just was an outlier. But you don't know that until you've tested right. enough other people to prove it one way or the other. Right, right. Well, and I think that's what happens, too, you know, especially, you know, those of us who are, you know, still new to it. And that that's also the great thing about that Facebook page you have. And, I mean, just in the time that you got 20,000 people, I mean, now it's, mm-hmm. you know, there's another almost 200 people in a week's time. So that's also a great way to not only, you know, share your questions, Um, and I know someone will, you know, post and say, listen, hey, I found, you know, birth family, and now they'll get, you know, no less than 500 people responding to that, you know, and I I love that. Yeah, I love that our community has gotten to that point that, you know, we really are, we're done with this secrecy. We're kind of done with this, (laughs) this place that we've all been at, and you know, by gosh, if they're not going to give us, you know, our um, OBCs, we're going to find it another way. And, you know, I remember somebody years, you know, maybe four years ago saying, you know, in the next 10 years, we're going to see that DNA will be the answer to, you know, most of the questions in the searches. And I 
I don't have any right. doubt that that's entirely possible. So oh, it is definitely going to happen. And, you know, I joke yeah. about it sometimes. No one will need me anymore because there will be so many right. close matches. I mean, it's already right. amazing how many close matches we're seeing. If you think about it, it's still a very small percentage of our population tested. Yet people, it's, it's inexplicable how they're getting these really close matches. Like, what are the chances that their first right. cousin has tested? It seems right, low, but yet it every day. We see it multiple times every day. There's something we haven't quite figured here yet, but I'm just really happy to see it. I mean, I was always trying to encourage <laughs> the community, oh, we'll get there, we'll get there. You know, I was the cheerleader. And I don't think even I realized how quickly we were going to get to this point and just how amazing it was going to be. I mean, we right. I don't think we couldn't right. imagine how many people would be well, getting their answers. Now. You know, it's funny because you know, in in someone saying, you know, I'll say, you know, when they when they call me, and of course, you know, I'm in Indiana, so I kind of have this, okay, do this, do this, do this, kind of, you know, and that that obviously is is now changing for the, for the better, but we're also saying not only you know follow these steps, but now definitely you need to consider DNA somewhere down the line, you know, even with the records opening in 2018. You know, there is that chance of a no, which really, really bites. But, you know, thanks to DNA and thanks to other ways, you know, there's other family to find and there's other ways to, you know, at least know, you know, possibly what your heritage is. And I think that's going to make such a huge difference. And it, it really, not only are we finding our relatives, but we're even able to tell the relatives that we're finding, oh, hey, did you know we're... <laughs> you know, 20% Scandinavian or, you know, I mean, just to know that, that's that's just crazy. I mean, I definitely find that the adoptees end up knowing way more about the birth family than they know about themselves. So when they find them, they're just a wealth of information. They have pictures right, of great right. grandparents and they know so much more in those cases. And it often brings different members of the birth family together as well, cousins who haven't spoken in decades or maybe ever, in some cases are also getting to know each other. And one thing I love is when we solve an adoption while working on an adoption. So sometimes the birth parent is adopted and we find the grandparent first. So it's like, wait a minute. Right. <laughs> yeah. you, find the birth parent, you can tell them who their birth parents are. In fact, they just have one like that. So that right. is really interesting, too, when you see that multi-generational uh, adoptions or some type of... And it of does people. happen. I mean, it is that way. I mean, Jean Strauss, you know, is a perfect example of that. I mean, she didn't do it through DNA, but, you know, that's that's her family. Mm-hmm. You know, she finds, you know, her mother only to find out her mother was an adoptee. And I do think, and, you know, if we want to get statistical on this, which, you know, that's what you and I kind of deal with, you know, for an adoptee that we are the, you know, we repeat this process. So sometimes that does happen. Um, I think it's getting to the place where it's less because of society. But for a while there, that was an easy repetition to have. Um, Right. You know, to relinquish a child and especially the time frame. So, you know, hopefully we're getting smarter about what we're doing with that. But, what would you say if you had to kind of, you know, all the stuff you've done, which has been totally amazing, and all the cases you've had, what has been probably your 
I don't know if you want to say your most difficult or the most, you know, um, challenging maybe of your cases so far. That's a tough one because they're challenging <laughs> in different ways. And if right. I started them a long time ago, they were especially challenging. For instance, Benjamin right. Kyle, the amnesiac, who's from Indiana, by the way, um, his was incredibly difficult because I started it when the databases were a lot slower, smaller. And right. he had some pedigree collapse, which means, you know, relatives that were intermarrying a lot in South Carolina, you know, first cousin, second cousin, third cousin. Right. When you're seeing the same ancestors in the family trees over and over, it makes it more challenging. So his right. was very difficult, although if he were to test today, his case would be much simpler. We wouldn't have had to trudge through what we did. Um, the team from DNA Adoption that helped me on that case, you know, they built a 50,000-person tree, I think. And, you know, try, we used to try small segment triangulation because we had nothing else. So we were triangulating these 20 Morgan segments, trying to find someone's birth parents. And most right. of the time that's spinning wheels. Now, with all of these close matches, it's so much easier. So the cases that were incredibly challenging, I think, would be less so today, which is encouraging for everyone that I think is just getting started. We see so right. many people on the group and elsewhere saying, you know, oh, I'm about ready to give up. I'm so frustrated. I don't have any good matches. And invariably, I just wait. A couple weeks later, a couple months later, right. that person is saying, I never thought this would happen to me. I got uh -huh. cousin. I got a half right. sibling." So people right. need to hold on. I know it's really hard, especially if they've been searching for decades, but the answer is coming. For right. pretty much everyone, I think the answer is coming. And a lot I'm, of those, it's going to come very, very soon because these databases are exploding. And people right. are more open to helping adoptees than they used to be. You know, we used to have to right. play games and not bring up the word. And we still, you know, don't advise bringing it up immediately. But when sure. it is brought up, people are so much more willing to help than they were five years ago, even right. I think two years. And the media has helped us with that. And that's why I do media. You know, it's really challenging to try to do media with unknown parentage cases because it's a sensitive topic and you don't want a camera right. ruining this chance for a happy reunion. And right. it's, it's a difficult thing to do. And I go back and forth on it, but I think what doing it has accomplished is it's gotten the public more on board for adoptee rights and recognizing how important biological family is for people. And it's right. made a lot of people aware of the, the issues. Me, for yeah. Like yeah, I yeah. never knew until I started doing this. And then when we have one of these shows that will air, like the 2021 I did or Finding Your Roots with LL Cool J, we get right. hundreds, if not thousands, of people writing to me, trying to find, a, you know, where can they get help? They didn't know that there was even any hope. And that's one of the reasons that I started that group, the DNA Detectives Facebook page, because I can't possibly help all these people. I wanted to right. have a place where people could help each other. Members help sure. members. And we have experts in there as well um, trying to guide it. But hopefully members know enough to be able to help each other, even if it's with just the first step. And right. when those shows air, I believe we get tens of thousands of new DNA testers from what right, I've heard. Right, right. That's true. Yeah. Pe not, um, not just people 
but people that go, hey, maybe I can help someone else, or they get curious about their own history, and they know their family tree, and those are the people we need to have testing. And so and that's I true. Think- yeah, I think I think we think that once we find and I think the good thing or bad, I guess, about mine is, you know, I really did have to test three people. So I think mm-hmm. it I think it's really great that I kinda had to because, you know, that that does go on to help because right. the the little cousin of mine that was the one C one R it it helped build her case on the opposite side by having those cousins test because we could see where they matched with her also. And, mm-hmm. I mean, it also helped then her mom figure out um, her husband who was adopted. It helped her kind of understand how she needed to look at, you know, his relatives and how they would match. So it really was a learning curve for everybody, but it really ended up helping more than just myself. So it's pretty and that's amazing. Right. I mean, that's right. what we had to do for both the Benjamin Kyle case and the Paul Franzak case. We were out there asking people to test, begging people right. to test in order to try out our theories. And it does help the database to grow. It helps visibility. And those are people mm-hmm. that fortunately with their family trees. And so if they are, you know, if they end up matching another adoptee, then that is helpful, like you're saying, even if they didn't end up matching the case we were working right. on. So we right. just want to keep encouraging everyone to test. But I think often it's like your case, where you don't get the immediate answer, so you do have mm-hmm. to reach out and get other family members to test in order to narrow it down. Now, sometimes we find that people just won't do it, but most of the time we're able to get somebody in that family to test to help us uh, clarify the relationship. Right. I, I really was. I mean, I and I always think that we feel very, you know, fortunate that, you know, when we do reach out to, you know, our family members who literally have no clue, you know, what is going on, you know, they say, you know, you explain, you know, the case. And, and I think it was funny because I think, and maybe other adoptees have run into this, you know, um, with us not knowing, you know, sometimes our paternal heritage, um, we find out these little bits and pieces and, you know, I found out that my dad had been married eight times. So there may very well be more of us. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, right. I mean, so it's, it's really, it's a good thing. I mean, hopefully our testing and it, I always get that question when I say, you know, you know, giving them the list of what to do and they're say, wait, wait a minute. That do you mean that someone from my family will test? And they think it's like this almost outer, <laughs> I don't know, space thing. Like, you know, is that going to happen? It really happens, and I don't think they realize that there are those two million people that have tested. So, you know, they're totally clueless that that's even a possibility. I mean, I think we're closing in on four million tested, really, because Ancestry, if they have 3.2, and if Ancestry and me have about one and a half, and the family tree today has, I don't know, they don't announce their numbers, but say, you know, 300,000 or so. Sure. Some of those are the same, but most of them aren't. So I do right. think we're really closing in on probably around four million, which is amazing. But people think, right. you know, they have to test. Sometimes when we contact a birth parent or when they're contacted by the adoptee, they say, "But I didn't DNA test. How'd you get my DNA?" And uh-huh. we try to explain. And so then they say, "Well, wait, you dug up my ancestors. How'd you get their DNA?" No, no, no. And you know, it's hard for people to understand. <laughs> right. They were able to put family trees back together from more distant 
relatives. I mean, it's really amazing when you think about it. It is. Yeah, I mean, I don't think, well, I know that I did not think, you know, 26, almost 27 years ago, that that was even going to be a possibility. I thought I would never know. You know, I really did. I didn't think I would ever know. And it it is, it's the best gift to get, you know. And like you said. The scientists were saying that we're not going to be able to use autosomal DNA for this purpose. We were using Y DNA to help men like Dick Hill find their paternal side, unknown paternal side. But autosomal DNA is opened it up for everybody and to find both sides and to zero in, because even with Dick Hill, spoiler if you haven't read his book, but, you know, Y (laughs) DNA led him in a slightly wrong direction when he used, oh, let me mention this, because he used that sibling ship type, the paternity type testing that is offered by those companies only test a handful of markers versus the 600 or 700,000 that we're using at the DNA companies, uh, the genealogy DNA companies. And so what can tell autosomal DNA that he got the real true answer to even his search? But as I was saying, scientists were telling us it wasn't going to be possible. That's why family mm-hmm. DNA had already introduced autosomal DNA because scientists were saying, no, recombination is too fast. It's going to make it just undoable. And then right. 23andMe had and introduced it, and everyone was like, wow. And I think citizen scientists had a lot to do with that because that wasn't 23andMe's original purpose. But some of our citizen scientists started sharing their DNA, seeing if they could detect these, you know, runs of shared DNA or these half-identical regions. And that's what then put our field forward. If it hadn't been for the citizen scientists using the science in a different way than was originally intended, I don't think we would be here. So it's, it's amazing. I think when I speak at forensic conferences or in front of scientists, they're still blown away by what we're doing. I mean, even if they're geneticists, oftentimes they're not aware of application that we're using their science for. You know what I'm saying? It's not what yeah. they learned. Right, And so right. they say, what? You're using second cousins in order to identify birth families? Wait, wait a second. Yeah, second, third, yeah. cousins in some instances. So it's, it's really something. I mean, it's been fascinating to be part of it from the ground floor. And I know you've actually gotten I, to see it literally just open up because I mean, you know, again, you know, when, when you and I basically, I don't even, I'm trying to think how far it goes back, but even then it was still in early days and, and what has mm-hmm. happened, you know, just in the past five years. I mean, it, I can't imagine yeah. what the next five years are going to bring. I can't. Yeah. People always ask me, you know, what's the future of genetic genealogy? And I do say what you just said. I don't think we can imagine it. We can come up with some ideas, but we couldn't have imagined what we're doing now. So, you know, seven years ago. So I don't think we can imagine what we'll be doing in another seven. I do think that, you know, the way the databases are growing, as long as there's no, no, no interference or government regulation, I think the vast majority of people of unknown parentage. And I use that term to include than just adopt these people with unknown paternity, uh, right. donor, uh, you know, Amerasian situations that sure. they will be getting their answers, particularly if their parents' ancestors have been in this country for a long time or even right. a few generations. So right. It's, right. it's amazing. 
I mean, well, I'll tell you, you know, um, doing doing the legislation in Indiana, you know, early this year, there was an adoptee that had been helping me and, um, you know, doing, you know, writing legislators and doing some things. And um, she came to, to watch us testify. And then, you know, we all go home. The weekend goes by and she calls me on Monday and she said, hey, did you do family tree DNA? And I said, I did. And she said, and you're, you know, under your name. I said, uh-huh. She said, you're not going to believe this, but we're third cousins. And I was like, what? <laughs> I mean, that's how that's how odd. And I would like to say that that is an oddity, but it happened two more times. Um, an Ohio adoptee tested, um, like maybe a month after we passed the bill, I got this thing mm-hmm. on my Facebook, and I, I'm really not sure how we even became friends. It's just one of those things. And she said, you're not going to believe this. I, de- I just tested on Ancestry, and I just got my results, and we're third cousins. So that's number two. And unfortunately, I had an adoptee friend um, that her she passed away from a car accident, and um, we literally were just getting her started doing her stuff, and oh, we never fun. got finish it yeah it was devastating and at the funeral home um I you know I saw a bunch of our classmates and I go home and I get on my ancestry and I think you know that picture looks like one of my younger you know classmates and I thought gosh I really I should check you know so I sent a little email and I you know said hey you know are you from Indiana and (laughs) she ends up writing back like uh it's me hello we went to high school together another third cousin and in like in three consecutive months, I ended up with three new third cousins, and I, you know, I had never known any of them. And I just well, think, oh my gosh, people, if you are not ready for a bumpy ride, don't do it. But you know, if you are, go for it because you know it's an amazing, you know, process that is hopefully going to bring, especially adoptees you know, some type of closure, and we deserve that. We deserve that with, you know, everything we have. And, you know, you've you've really created something that is so good for everyone, and, you know, people really ought to be thanking their lucky stars that you even started this because it really just okay. takes one, you know. And I know you have help, and I, and I know there are other people, but really it's always one person's, you know, dream or awesomeness or, you know, whatever it is, it's our moment and we do it and, you know, it's a ripple effect. Um, well, people I don't know. always ask me how, how I ended up doing this and what my connection is to adoption. And that's what's the funniest thing about it is I don't have any other connection to adoption as far as I know anyway. And right. So this is never something that I could have imagined being involved in, but as a genetic genealogist, I feel so strongly that everyone has an equal right to their heritage and to access right. their tree and their research and to get to know their ancestors. And so when I found out there was this whole group of people that were denied this, what I see as a birthright, I just couldn't believe it. So I never right. knew this would be my cause, but I've definitely right. set about trying to help to right that wrong, what I see as a wrong. And right. in doing so, I found out a lot of people that were around me were adopted. In fact, it seems to be attracted to me. It seems like everywhere I go, I'm meeting adoptees and <laughs> also finding out that people I've known for years and years, a girl I grew up with on the next street and went to elementary school with all the way through high school, wrote to me recently and told me she was a foundling. She had been abandoned with a babysitter when she was a month old. 
I never oh, knew my. that. I didn't know she was right. an adoptee, certainly not a foundling. But she's friends with me on Facebook, so she saw everything I was doing and asked me if I could help her. And we were able right. to identify her birth mother. So, you know, it's just, it's amazing to me that I ended up doing this, but I'm really thankful because it's such a meaningful thing to do. And it's so beautiful to see these circles of love being expanded for both the adoptee and for their children and sometimes grandchildren, just seeing how many new people there are to love in their family. And sometimes, you know, as you know, it's not the birth parent, but it's the aunts and uncles or grandparents or cousins. And you highlighted something a minute ago. I think that's really meaningful for adoptees, and not everyone realizes it. But even finding a third cousin when you take a DNA test can be really meaningful if you're someone that has never known your biological family. Um, And so every adoptee I know that's tested has gained something from it, whether it's a more distant relative like that or whether it's learning about their heritage, something they didn't know, their ancestral origins. A lot of people find out they're part Jewish or they have a little bit of African or they have a lot of Native American, as you mentioned at the beginning. And I think an adoptee or someone of unknown parentage always gains something from testing, even if it doesn't lead immediately to their birth family and even if they don't get that dream reunion that so many people are hoping for. um, There's always something good that comes out of it, at least so far, the cases I've seen. There's nothing, right. never been one, you know, wholly negative. Everyone has always said to me in the end that they are happy to have the knowledge of their exactly. origin. Exactly. Even if they didn't get that, you know, welcome, open-armed response from a birth parent. So I, I think agree. it's definitely worth doing. But like yeah, and said, I think, I mean, I think that's what it's, yeah, I do. I think what it's about is it's closure. I mean, and it's not, you know, not just for adoptees, but I do think that obviously that's the, the side I mostly come from, and I and I think it is, it, it's something that gives us not only closure, and it gives us a little bit of our, you know, our history. And you know, if the reunion or just the connection isn't there, you know, we then at least have some knowledge, and we have the ability to say, you know, you know, this is this is where my people come from, and you know, it's it's definitely an amazing step. If people, you know, want to know, you know, where to start, you know, how to get this going, um, what do you think is the best way for them to do this? Where do we, where do we tell people to go um, to kind of start this step? Well, if they're on Facebook, as we keep mentioning my group, um, I think going to the DNA detectives is a really good start. If they're right. not on Facebook, it's, it's more difficult um, when we all started this, we were using mailing lists, and they still right. exist. So there's still the DNA adoption mailing list, and they have a great site with resources. So people still okay. are definitely using that. Um, it's just that so many people were turning towards social media more like Facebook-type um, right. connections that made me finally start that group. I mean, I was already running a bunch of mailing lists and working with adoptees and other newbies in genetic genealogy that way. But Facebook just exploded as far as the community, our genetic genealogy community and the adoption community. And so if you're not on Facebook, I think you should seriously consider it because there's so much good work that's happening there. And even I finally had to give in. I wasn't 
I kept putting off starting a group like that because I was already right. so busy. But I could just see that oh, yeah. was, there was so much more we could accomplish over there than sure. anywhere else, any of the other forums. Um, so, right. you know, that's a great place to come. If you're interested in some of the media stories, uh, I have them up on my website, which is thednadetectives.com. So if you've missed any of those, um, I think those are worth seeing, especially if you're not an adoptee and you want to understand this a little bit better. Of course, they simplify the process on television, but you'll get a good overview of the process. Right, right, right. And... Yeah, I mean, so much. I think that's. I, I think at least we've given people hopefully a good start. You know, you know, learning about I, you know it's autosomal that, you know, it's saliva. You know, definitely if you don't have Facebook, at least invest in it for this little bit of time to help get yourself to a place where there are twenty thousand plus people to help you. You know that we've all given each other hints, and you know um, I've become friends with and really good friends with some people on that page just offering to help, and then we became right. friends. So it is a place of you know friendships too. So there's so much to that. Yeah, um, I mean, we really try hard to keep it as a really positive, pleasant place. Of course, there are a yes. lot of heightened feelings, so sometimes people don't agree, but we try hard to keep it kind. Yes. Um, but I did forget right. to say my own blog. So I, for, I rarely have time to write on my blog anymore. <laughs> it's so bad of me to forget to mention it because I do have a resources tab. <laughs> so my blog is yourgeneticgenealogist.com, yourgeneticgenealogist.com, okay. and there's resources tab. So if you go and click on that resources, it'll give you some different mailing lists and Facebook groups and videos right. and articles and things like that, other blogs, other great blogs that are still writing and I'm not. Um, so that's right. also something to look at if you're just looking for different types of uh, material or resources or if you don't want to spend all your time on Facebook. Right. Well, you've given us, honestly, so much stuff, and I'm I'm so glad I had you on. I've wanted to, you know, do this show, and I think we probably could do three shows and go way into yeah. so much more. But, you know, I hope everyone will listen to this and be able to, you know, play it back and maybe, you know, rehear it and, you know, if anybody is in Indiana, you know, and is an adoptee or a birth parent um, or any interest in, you know, that process, they can get a hold of us by going to uh, indianaadoptionnetwork.org. And um, then all the wonderful websites that, you know, you've listened or you've listed and the blog. And I hope everybody take advantage of you know, getting on Facebook, and I just want to thank you again so much for taking the time and, you know, explaining it to us, to us newbies, (laughs) and, um, we've noticed since almost the beginning, I think around 2010, maybe 2011, so it's great to finally get to Yeah, yeah, that's great, yeah, thank you again, and everybody, um, you know, hopefully you've gained a lot from today's show, thanks again for being on. As usual, my always closing out again for everybody is remember to have blue skies and green lights, and thanks until next time, everybody. Thank you very much. Thanks, Pam. Bye. Bye.